0: I'm so excited to have James Harris here with us today. He's a licensed mental health professional. He's a multi-entrepreneur in Richmond, Virginia. Men to Heal assists men to focus on their overall wellness, mental, emotional, and physical health. He conducts sessions on various topics involving boys, men, and mental health. He also owns the Healing Hub, which offers outpatient therapy, massages, yoga, mindfulness, seminars on such things as financial literacy, first-time home buying, veteran seminars, voter education, restoration of rights, um, LGBTQ+, to name a few, toiletry drives, school supply drives, and Feed the Less, Fortunate, every third Saturday. Lastly, but definitely not leastly, (laughs) James authored a book entitled Man, Just Express Yourself, which is an interactive guide for men, young and old. And I said last but not least, because there's one more thing. He also created a board game called Cheesy Dates, which I have purchased, by the way. This is a tool to enhance communication and friendships and relationships. So James, thanks so much for being here.
1: No, thank you. I appreciate you for extending the invitation.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you're a busy man, so I feel honored and privileged that you'd share some space with me today. You do so much. It's amazing, and I love it. Like, what brought you to this work?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of different reasons. So starting yeah. off, when I was younger, I was a the, the state, so
0: therapy was mm. mandatory. Mm. Yeah. I used to be that therapist back in the day, too. So. Uh, well, hopefully yeah. you wasn't this therapist. Because- well, not that therapist, but like doing that work. Doing that
1: no, work. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know, I yes, know what yes, you're yes. saying. But so for <laughs> me, I say that because it wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah. Yep. So being a water of the state, you know, having to do therapy on a weekly basis, it wasn't a cohesive process. I didn't feel like, you know, I was obtaining as much as I could from therapy. I felt like it was just a check in the box. I'm just young, black hair from the projects and all uh, the therapists were older white people. It wasn't something pleasant for me and I guess the mm-hmm. rest of the residents all over the world who are in similar situations. So fast forward later, joined the military, eight years to deployments on Afghanistan. You know, I knew I was different, tried therapy again. And this time, the same experience. Just going to therapy and it wasn't any veteran therapist or combat related therapist. So it just was again another turn off situation. And that's part of the reason too, why a lot of veterans tend to go to the group as opposed to individual therapy because it's not that relatable and cohesive experience. So for me, I just felt it was something that I had to do and here we are.
0: So it's like you work to become what you wish you had when you were a kid, what you wish you had when you were a vet. Correct. I mean, I think it's really Generous of you to actually give it a try again as a vet. Uh, yeah, so I, I know, right?
1: You know, yeah, yeah. Just I figured it was definitely benefits to therapy and benefits to processing different life events, whether those are stressors, traumas, or just to maintain the good things that was going on. So I understood that therapy has a positive outlook. It can be beneficial. So that's why I stuck with it. But I made my transition into it just to ensure that. You know, because think about how many other people would just give up after they meet a therapist they don't connect with. You know, Exactly. So, yeah, so that's casting a doubt on, on that's how you feel when it could have just been that specific relationship. So for me, that was the direction. I just wanted to change the approach. I wanted to be as human as possible, as authentic and eclectic as possible to continue to draw people in. And then, of course, with that, the most, underserved probably group is males. So I just wanted to break a lot of stigmas, break a lot of barriers and assist families and males to have something to look forward to.
0: No, it's amazing. I love it. I love it. I mean, even in all of your experience, you're able to see the good in people, the good in the field, the positive benefits potentially, you know, again, which not a lot of people can do, have done, and then have bad experiences about therapy into their life. So what does it mean to you to be a Black man in this field? What does it mean? It means I'm a unicorn. You know, that's what a lot of people say, but to
1: be real with you, now, it's a gratifying experience just because not only from the perspective of the different clientele, but the perspective of a lot of other fellow clinicians, you know, because it's a rigorous field. It's a lot of tenacity that you have to have. It's a lot of, underappreciation, potentially it's a lot of give and take within the field. And it's a lot of reluctance, too, because it's still taboo to a lot of people, Uh specifically the male population, whether that's ego or just don't want to be classified as some less than whatever a man is, you know. So it's a lot of barriers to be broken, but I'm up for the task and I definitely appreciate it. Like, I definitely enjoy it. To hear the testimonies or to just to see the change, just to see people accomplishing our goals or making changes within our lifestyle, not only to impact them, but the people vicariously around them. You know, so all of those things are beneficial and gratifying to not only me, but to them. Like the praises I get from spouses or parents or again, fellow therapists, it's a good feeling because. Just being a black man within the field, it's not a lot of access and availability for people who look like me, so to be able to provide those things is definitely another beneficial point.:
0: No, it's huge, and I appreciate. It. I mean, you are a unicorn, but I don't want you to be one for long. I want other black men to come up and value the profession, you know, value what we're able to do so It's great that you can role model that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it is though, to be honest, which you it's a lot of us, but I don't think they're as loud as I probably am or that they could be, you know, because it is Yeah, yeah. It's definitely growing within the field. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still a small population of men and an even smaller population of black men, but what I'm saying is they're there. They just have to be out so people can find them and so they can get the same recognition or praise within that, you know, like, yeah, my voice is just big or my marketing or branding, I guess is just big and me going into a space and just leaving a stamp or impact is how I guess I am recognized for it.
0: Got you. Got you. I appreciate that humility. I mean, I agree because AF mindset is growing and prioritizing black and brown people to join my team. I think that people are going to be their own humans about how they show up to it outside of the space and room with their client. But I think it's great to have someone like you be open and proud and speaking on it. The marketing is great. Like that visibility shows people like, oh shit, if I want to go to a therapist, there's somebody who might look like me. Maybe there's already a relatable point. So Mm -hmm. I think that's super valuable. I mean, speaking of that, let's say someone comes to you and is like, they're a brown or black person and they're wanting to be in therapy or seek mental health services. What would you want them to know as they embark on the process, as they are, are tentative? Like, what would you want them to know that people might not know about it before they embark?
1: Yeah. yeah. So I have a YouTube channel with a video on there that identifies what is therapy. So that might be beneficial to people who are seeking. It's a couple of different other videos on there as well. But I think a lot of people don't know that they can do consultations. So you can call different therapists. Even though your insurance company say, hey, this is who we're sending you to, you can decline that and do your own due diligence and research and call as many as you want to to ensure that it's a fit for you, you know? So most of them offer a 15 minute consultation for free and you can ask them, you know, what is your theory radical orientation? Have you ever worked with males? Have you ever worked with black people? What are your views on LGBT? Like you ask those questions because this is a process for not only you, but for them as well. And I think a lot of people are turned off to therapy is because they were given this therapist and it wasn't a good fit. So I feel like it was forced or, wasn't organic and they're viewing it as, oh, this is not working. It's not working because it's not really a rapport there. It's you, again, feeling like I'm being judged or belittled or whatever. I got to tell a stranger my business, you know, so it could be different if people were aware of the things that they can do and the power that they have because you're paying for it or your copay or whatever the case is. So you definitely want to ensure that it's going to be something that's impactful. Now, whether that's getting a therapist who look like you or getting somebody of the opposite, you know, but that either way you have to process, you have to do the work within session as well as doing the work outside of session. So I think all of those things are important.
0: I agree. I mean, like you said, people are paying for it. I mean, people in therapy are consumers of that service. So you ain't going to just like embark on it blindly and then suck it up if it don't feel right. You know, like if we're going to go, let's say, shopping for a car, we're not just going to like take somebody's referral. I'm like, oh yeah, this type of car, this model is great. And then you trust it. You have to go in there and drive it, ask questions, read about it, do your research. And I think, like you said, people don't feel empowered enough or feel like they have the right or something to ask those questions. I mean, clients need to interview us.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they should, you know, without being Demonize for it. I know a couple of therapists who don't take consultations because they find out it's a waste of time or whatever the case is. But, you know, to each his own, I definitely would encourage it because you don't... Like, I dislike having a waiting list. Like, I have people... I refer at least seven people, seven males to therapy a week. Like, I don't want you to wait for me because you can be getting help by somebody else in the immediate, you know? That's right. I know therapists who oppose that and just have people waiting for months. So... It's your practice, you do what you want to do, but I just know it's other ways that can be effective if the goal is to ensure that we are treating people, we're assisting people. So for me, that's what it is. Like, it's no competition. It's, yo, I can't help you right now. I got a waiting list, but here's somebody who probably can get you in next week. So that's our move, just ensure that everything is good because it's not about me, it's about you. And then if you are a client, it's about us. We can have that collaboration and creating that treatment plan and moving forward.
0: That's right. I love it. I mean, I think that, again, the humility you have that this isn't just you. You're not the only one doing the work. People deserve to get the service as soon as possible. I think the way we both, it sounds like, use that 15-minute consultation is to actually triage it. Like, is this a good match for me? Is this the best match? Am I hearing that I'm meeting the criteria that you potential client are bringing? And then also gives me information. If I want to refer out, I can say this person might be calling with these initials. And then this is the presenting issue or the desire for what they would want. They can expect the call and make that bridge. And I think both the potential therapist and potential client appreciate that if there's a referral being made. So I totally agree. I totally agree. I know in the Black community, there is a huge stigma around the medical field. And then thus in the mental health field, there's history of Black people being used for experiments. It's tough to trust. How do you address that if it comes up and when it comes up?
1: So again, on my YouTube channel, I got a video on there discussing why or some of the reluctance to trust in medical providers, mental health providers, is deep rooted from a systemic approach. So it's ingrained. And to be honest with you, it should be a hesitancy there, depending on where you are generationally, of course, ethnic-wise, because realistically, a lot of people don't know drapetomania was, or it's no longer a term now that's used, but Black slaves were classified with Drapertomania, which is a diagnosis for those slaves who wanted to escape. Like, I break all that down on the YouTube channel, but think about that. Like, if you want to escape from slavery, you were classified with a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in addition to the, of course, other experiments and things that transpired within the medical field, this Henrietta Latch and just other experiments that were happening on not only slaves, but of course, Black people, whether it was bribery or just to trade resources. Hey, we'll give you X, Y, Z if you let us do this experiment or whatever the case is. So I definitely understand the hesitancy, but I do know in some cases, we as the providers have to break those barriers and have to educate people on the benefits of Seeing somebody, a provider, because again, it's a stigma there as well. Not all providers are bad. Not all providers are not working for the client specifically. And I think also it's another issue of people not understanding that it's confidentiality within place. Because think about it like, if I don't understand confidentiality, the fear is I'm going to tell you this and I might lose my job or I might get my children taken away from me or, you know, whatever the case is. But people yeah. don't know confidentiality, like, it's between you and I unless it's those core areas. You want to harm yourself, you want to harm others, you know, abuse to older people, abuse to tri- like, those things. But people just think, like, yo, I can't tell you X, Y, Z because I'm going to be viewed differently. Or, again, like, it might come with a heavier burden or, uh-huh. you know, jail time or whatever the case is. So a lot of people don't know that. So a lot of it is we have to educate more within the field to ensure that people know the options that they have or don't have when it comes to that stigma attached to why African-Americans don't want the uh, assistance. It's not that they don't want it in most cases, but access and availability too. Yeah. You, know, you can want it, but like I got to work overtime. So when am I going to go if you close at five o'clock? Or I got multiple children and I need to tend to like, so when am I going to go? Or I want to go, but you're not on a bus line. So how am I going to get there? You know, so it's Mm -hmm. other issues that we have to address. We have to ensure that we're doing those things because it's not just, oh, you need help and you're not taking it. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. So all of those things have to be addressed.
0: For sure. It's not that simple. And then a therapist doesn't understand that they need to educate and provide that perspective. Is going to write in their notes, oh, they're resistant which in itself is judgmental. In your experience, when you talk about accessibility, COVID coming into play, forcing a lot of us to do virtual sessions, how have you found that in your practice and in your work? How do you experience that as a therapist doing virtual sessions versus in-person? How do you think your client receives it? Yeah,
1: in the beginning, it was difficult for, I would say, the younger class trying to sustain their attention on the computer, and then the senior population just trying to get them to understand how to work. the Absolutely. absolutely. within the middle of that spectrum, I think it was overall a good process. And I think it's more beneficial to the clients because they can do it in place without having to leave their area and travel and do other stuff. And to be real with you, some of them even felt a little bit more comfortable because they were in their safe spaces in most cases. Mm -hmm. But I would say it did make it a little bit more difficult to start out because just having to ensure that, hey, you can't be around anybody else while we're doing session because this is your safe space. Like if somebody, like I want you to be able to talk freely as if you were in the office or I want you to use the same emotions as if this was still in person. You know, and sometimes that can get blurred because if you got this, teenager who has issues with that parent and the parent is right there, Like they can't express themselves fully. Or you got this partner who same situation with the spouse. So those things we had to navigate like, hey, you know, your session time. So I need you to be in a room alone or area alone to where you can interact freely without feeling that you have to hold back or whatever, because of course that can hinder the process as well.
0: Absolutely. No, I've come across the same situations. I think that it feels like that when we offer virtual sessions, it can mitigate the impact of access. Like they don't have to catch that bus. They don't have to leave their kids with someone. They do have to have a private space and hopefully not have the kids around you while you're meeting, but they're able to have the session. And I think that actually changed things in a way that I probably could never predict. So I appreciate your approach on it. In what area of your work do you enjoy the most as you reflect on your like day and your week and your current roles and all the things that you do? Collaborating and networking.
1: Like I definitely enjoy different speaking engagements and or vending opportunities because I meet so many different people who didn't know what they didn't need. You know what I'm saying? So those things are always there because somebody I see the shirt and be like, oh man, that's dope. What is it about? You know, so it's an instant conversation starter. And then after I tell them what is about what I do, they immediately say, oh man, I need one because I was just looking for a doctor or I haven't had a physical or I've been meaning to find somebody to talk to or whatever. Or of course, the partners be like, oh man, my husband can use this. Or the parents be like, I got this teenage son who's stubborn or is doing XYZ So that part right there, again, the instant conversation starter. And there's so many people who have that universality. Like, I'm going through this too. Like, I didn't even know that this was a thing. So all of those things, to me, is probably my favorite part.
0: I appreciate it. And I think there's ways, too, that we can use our clinical skills and training outside of just the therapy room. And you should. I think you should. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I do this podcast. Like, everybody's like, you're a natural. I was like, this is what I do every day. Mm -hmm. I just have like some headphones on now and I got to deal with the darn screen, but like, here I am. But I agree. I agree. If you were to speak, you said you like speaking. If you were going to do a talk and there were grandparents and their grandkids there, those two generations represented. And they were here to learn from you about what is mental health. What would be some important points you'd like to make sure you share with them?
1: Oh, a younger population and a grandparents population? Yeah. I'd be real with you. i make it as interactive as possible. I would have the grandparents to discuss with those younger people the things that they wish they would have had at that age opposed to being here as a grandparent and still don't have those tools. So I think that would be beneficial because old fools used to be young fools. So we want to prevent as many fools as we can. You know, so (laughs) since you're in the same room, you might as well get with that elder and see his journey or her journey And try to navigate to where you don't have to be this age and just coming into the realization that you need assistance. You know, so to me, that would be one approach that I would do. But I will also applaud the young people for even being willing to, I guess, prevent some things from happening and taking a step to be here now. And then, of course, with the older population, I go back to them and see what was the reluctancy or the lack of urgency to get whatever the issue is resolved I and mean, why they decided now as a grandparent or an older person to, you know, look into those things. This could have been prevented. So that would be my approach.
0: I appreciate it. I love it. I love it. And You did not hesitate. I mean, it sounds like you've had these talks before. It yeah. makes sense. Like, you know, what works for the different age groups. I tried to like throw a little something different in there and you're like, well, this is what I would do. So I really appreciate it. There's so much that we can learn from our elders. And if the young people know how to communicate it clearly, there's a lot that they can express to their elders as well. And so I really appreciate our time together. Is there anything else that you want to make sure you share? Oh, I have something I want to ask you. We therapists are humans too. We don't just come in here and serve day in and day out. What are some like practices that you do to take care of your own mental health?
1: Yeah, so I do a lot of exercise. So, you know, weightlifting, kickboxing, and of course running. But now we got this Peloton, so I mix it between running and the Peloton. The
0: Peloton! I like that one too. Yeah, yeah. And
1: I know my daughters. that's good. But I do meditation, writing, exercises, you know, and I vacation a lot. Not so much since the pandemic has been happening, but now that it's subsided in many areas. We're going to start back traveling. So for the most part, though, my self care is pretty intense. Like it's good, you know. And a lot of people don't even think I work. They just be like, you know, like for you, you be like, "Yo, you're so busy, you don't XYZ." But a lot of people like, "Yo, you never, you know what I mean?" Like you, I just we see you chilling. Like, what are you doing? So, for <laughs> you, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah, I got a lot of self care.
0: That's important. And I come from the place of if I'm asking someone to take care of their mental health, I have to too. It might be different, but knowing and building that self-awareness about what it is that works for you. They see you out there chilling, but they don't see you working, so they think that's all you do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the way my life's out of structure. You know what I'm saying? I can have nice things, but I guess not look like I work as hard. You know what I'm saying? Even though like the work is intense, I mix it up because I got a diverse portfolio as far as business. But the key is to be stress-free as possible.
0: I mean, that's why we work, right? Well, one of the main reasons to help people serve and then also provide for our families and not work as much so we can be with each other. So I appreciate and respect all that you're doing. I'm just honored and privileged to have had this conversation with you. And I look forward to many, many more and like just keep being you. Anyone who's able to sit with you is fortunate. So I just, I really appreciate you.
1: I appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot for extending the invitation. Good luck and the growth on your platform. And I definitely appreciate you for getting my board game as well. So keep up the good work. Hopefully it's definitely a good tool for you within your practice and within your personal life.
0: Thank you so much. It absolutely is. I'm having fun with it.